Deep into History is part of the Big Heads Media Network. Go to bigheadsmedia.com for more great podcasts. Before we begin, I wanted to thank everyone who voted for Deep into History in the People's Choice Podcast Awards. Your votes made the show a finalist for the best educational podcast. This has brought so much attention and piqued interest in the show. We'll know the final results in October, but I can say that it is truly an honor to be nominated. I'm so touched. Thank you all from the bottom of my heart. I love you. Also, I would like to thank my newest patron, Deb, who signed up on patreon.com slash deep into history and attained the rank of historian. Deb, I salute you and thank you from the center of my being. Consider this a foreword. This is the second part and conclusion of Peerless. If you haven't listened to that epic saga, stop this episode now and listen to it first. In order to maintain the tempo and flow of said saga, I'll only be doing the briefest recap of events before picking up exactly where we left off. Keep that in mind as we go forward. And with that said, this forward comes to an end. This is Deep Into History, and I'm your host, Arjun Hundle. Rage, unlimited ambition, selfish passion, rivers of blood, total war. It is the pinnacle of the Bronze Age, the Age of Heroes. The abduction of Helen has drawn the entire Greek world into a fragile alliance with one goal, the utter destruction of the golden city of Troy. The Greek armada of 300 black ships arrived to find the Trojans and their allies had heavily fortified the beach. What occurred next was the most titanic amphibious invasion mankind had ever attempted. With the best archers in the world manning fixed positions, the Trojans fought brilliantly until Ajax, Achilles, and Teucer were united on the battlefield that is. The heroes, combined with their men, the Myrmidons, and the archers of Salamis, breached the Trojan line so decisively that it became only a matter of time before Hector was forced to order a retreat back to the Golden City. This is the tale of the end of the Age of Heroes, the tale of two civilizations locked in a struggle so vicious and violent that no matter what occurred, their world would never be the same again. The saga of the rise and fall of the greatest hero the world has ever known. So take a deep breath, let it out slowly, put some smoke in the air if you choose, and let your mind float on my voice as we go deep into the year 1184 before the Common Era and experience the Trojan War. Peerless, welcome back. After that vicious battle, the most titanic amphibious operation of the Bronze Age, the Greek assault had secured the beach. Yet this was only achieved with very high casualties. The Trojans had fought like men possessed to protect their soil. After the battle to secure the beach, Agamemnon would have been forced to take a few days to establish and fortify an army camp with ditches and a wooden palisade built with gates and sentry towers. This would have been no easy feat on the sand and on the marshy soil just beyond it. All the while, the raiders would have seen the massive Trojan walls and the golden city just beyond, imagining the plunder, slaves, and women they would take. It would have also reached Agamemnon's ever-jealous ears that the soldiers of his army were speaking the names Achilles and Ajax with awe, admiration, and respect. Three days after the landing, the Greek army took the field only to find the Trojan army arrayed against them under the cover of the archers lining the city walls. Even with the huge losses on the beach, the Greeks still outnumbered the Trojans at least four to one. Before taking the field, Paris had gone to his father, King Priam, and declared that this war was a dispute between he and Menelaus, and proclaimed that he would challenge Menelaus to a duel for Helen's hand and settle this matter once and for all. King Priam knew that Agamemnon had merely used Helen as an excuse to fulfill his ambitions of becoming high king of a new empire that would span Greece, Thrace, the islands of the Aegean, and Anatolia. He seriously doubted the terms of the duel would be honored and tried to dissuade his son from offering the challenge. Yet Paris, perhaps racked by guilt, insisted. So it was that when the leaders of both sides met in the field between their armies, Paris issued his challenge. The terms, 
If Menelaus won, Helen would be returned along with all the treasure of Sparta she had brought with her. If Paris won, the Greeks would sail for home and swear not to trouble Troy and its allies again. While this was going on, King Priam had asked Helen to join him on the walls and point out who the various Greek kings were and to watch the duel where her fate would be decided. Before Agamemnon could answer the challenge, Menelaus agreed to the duel. Though he was nowhere near the top tier of Greek heroes, Menelaus was a large man and a ferocious warrior who had proven himself in countless battles. When confronted with the reality of facing the enraged Menelaus, Paris balked and wanted to withdraw his challenge. Hector pulled his brother aside and informed Paris that he had put the honor of all of Troy at stake and that if he didn't fight, he would be forced to kill him himself. Fearing his brother's wrath more than Menelaus, Paris took the field. The two men, one a warrior, the other a spoiled prince, met between their armies. Menelaus rushed Paris, quickly overcoming his weak defenses and dominating the prince. He pushed Paris's spear and sword aside contemptuously and punched and kicked Paris as he lay on the ground. He then grabbed Paris's helmet and began dragging him back towards the Greek army. It was then that the chin strap that kept Paris's helmet in place snapped. Paris got up and began to sprint back to the Trojan lines. It is unclear exactly what happened next. The consensus I draw from the epic cycle is that Menelaus ran after him, and as he approached the Trojan lines, a nervous archer shot a single arrow at Menelaus, wounding him, though not severely. It mattered not. Duels were sacred, and the honor of Troy was forever diminished in the eyes of the Greeks. The Trojans had violated the truce, and a general battle began immediately. The Greek army charged the Trojan lines. The fighting was fierce, and even though outnumbered, the Trojans were fighting right before their walls. The Greeks would have been under a constant arrow storm from the archers on the walls, and unable to bear the casualties, the Greeks were repulsed. Helen returned to her manor house and attempted to soothe her cowardly husband's ego and tend to his wounds. As the Greeks returned to their camp, Agamemnon would have been faced with the cold hard reality that Troy was not the easy target that he had thought it would be and that the city would not fall quickly. Even more unsettling for him, he knew that the other Greek kings would be thinking the same thing and perhaps beginning to question his judgment. Thus, after the dead were removed from the battlefield and the wounded were tended, a war council of all the Greek kings was called to plan a much wider and all-encompassing regional war. For you see, the Greek army did not have the numbers to encircle and besiege Troy. This meant that the city could be resupplied by its allies via caravans overland, and the Trojans were free to enter and leave the city for most of its gates. The Greeks could also ill afford just to sit and wait for the allied armies to march and join their strength with Troy's. Additionally, the Greeks needed to live off the land as it were, and as such they would have to conduct constant raids on heavily fortified cities and citadels across the Aegean just to feed themselves. Also consider that the sacrifice at Aulis, where Agamemnon sacrificed his eldest daughter to appease a goddess, still loomed large. Achilles and others had still not forgiven nor forgotten that terrible episode. The Greek leaders were also aware that Troy needed to fall quickly, for if their overlord the Hittite Empire resolved its civil war and decided to send a relief army, they would be crushed by their vast hosts. It was wise old King Nestor of Pylos who came up with a plan to address all of this. He suggested that Ajax cross the Hellespont to Europe and raid the Trojan allies in Thrace. At the same time, Achilles would lead a powerful fleet to seize any island nations of the Aegean loyal to Troy and then strike inland at the heart of Trojan support in Anatolia. One third of the army would remain to keep the Trojan army in place and prevent them from rendering aid to their allies. They drew up plans for supply chains and their own caravan routes to the army from all over the Trojan world. In addition, Odysseus was put in charge of all clandestine operations, spying on Troy, infiltrating enemy camps, 
and if possible coming up with a way to open the city gates through subterfuge. With their plans made, the black ships set sail and the Greeks began their relentless campaign. According to Homer and much of the epic cycle, the war lasted 10 years. Modern scholars all agree that this would have been impossible given the resources produced by Bronze Age societies. It would be simply impossible to sustain a large army in the field for that length of time, or for Troy to feed itself with the countryside ravaged by marauding Greeks. The Trojan War was originally thought to be just a myth, so the length of the war was immaterial. However, since archaeology revealed that a city matching Homer's description existed on that site, at that time, the length of the war has since been hotly debated. Some have suggested that it was 10 campaign seasons, with the armies resting during the winter, which would mean that the war ended in the first season, spring, of the fourth year. Even this reduction in length would have stretched Bronze Age supply chains past their breaking point. 10 weeks has been suggested, though this figure is generally dismissed as the Greeks, as proved by archaeologists, sack cities far down the coast and well into Thrace, which means 10 weeks would not be enough time. In a fairly recent revelation, it was discovered that in Homer's time, five centuries later, when the epic was written, the phrase, if not on the ninth time, try a tenth was in common use. So this may be where the notion for Homer's timeline for the Iliad came from. For our purposes, given all the factors we've considered, let's estimate ten months as a very rough timeline, well within the capabilities of these civilizations. Given the short distance across the Hellespont, Ajax's task force struck first. The small fortified towns and even large citadels proved no match for the onslaught of the experienced Greek raiders. Though never considered a wise man, in war Ajax was the bulwark of the Greek army, leading every assault himself, slaying hero after hero, burning and sacking town after town, and in the eyes of the hero-obsessed Greeks, covering himself in glory. After each settlement or stronghold was sacked, their grain stores, wine, and treasury would be escorted to the coast and shipped back to the Greek army at Troy the spoils to be divided as Agamemnon saw fit. After three months of intense fighting, the northern front was secured. Now remember Prince Palamedes, the man who had exposed Odysseus's ruse of mental illness on Ithaca and forced him to join the war? In the camp on the beach of Troy, Odysseus was now a powerful spymaster and had his revenge. He had never forgiven Palamedes for ruining his attempt to stay out of the war. Odysseus hid gold in his tent and wrote a fake letter purportedly from King Priam. The letter was found and the Greeks accused him of being a traitor. Found guilty by a council of kings, Palamedes was stoned to death by Odysseus and the men of Ithaca. Keep this act of vengeance in mind, as it'll have dire consequences. Achilles and his third of the army struck the islands loyal to Troy like a bolt of Zeus's lightning. Knowing that the Greeks would be coming, the small island nations would have fortified themselves, making each landing a mini version of the assault on the Trojan beach. Achilles and the Myrmidons proved unstoppable. They made quick work of the islands, and with them neutralized, the Aegean effectively became a Greek-controlled sea. This at least allows the possibility that Agamemnon's army at Troy began to receive supply ships from home, and in turn would allow them to send some of their plunder back. We know that ships arrived from Greece because one of them carried Palamedes' father, who refused to believe that his son was a traitor and came to withdraw his troops. He was a minor king, and his troops were few in number, no real harm to the overall war effort. But when he returned home, bitter and suspicious, he spread tales to the wives of all the kings at Troy that they had taken mistresses and were planning on setting them aside to marry them. In addition, and most crucially, he informed Clytemnestra, Agamemnon's wife, that their daughter had not married Achilles, but had been used as a human sacrifice for her husband's ambitions. Devastated and angered at the horrific news, Clytemnestra plotted her revenge. After taking the islands, Achilles struck Anatolia. 
This campaign was more difficult because the mainland citadels were larger and more well defended. Yet one by one they fell, and after each a caravan was dispatched north to the Greek camp to resupply the army. It is said that Achilles sacked 27 towns and citadels. After a grueling campaign, his army returned to their ships and returned to Troy. When Achilles' task force arrived, they found the Greek army camp in disarray. The army was discontent and on the verge of starvation, and worse, many troops had just mutinied. Troops were all entitled to a share of the immense plunder that the Greeks had amassed and wished to go home as rich men. Instead, they were stuck on the swampy beach, many dying of sickness from the terrible conditions and poor diet. For you see, many of those supply caravans that Achilles had sent north had been intercepted by Hector using teams of fast-moving chariots. Instead of reaching the Greek army camp, they had only served to resupply Troy. The vast supplies and loot that Achilles' fleet brought alleviated the situation. Then Achilles gave a rousing speech to the army and convinced them that they must finish what they started, or Troy would survive and thrive and one day seek vengeance on all Greece. This worked. At the same time, learning of the mutiny and seeking to take advantage of the situation, King Priam sent an offer to the Greeks. He would return the wealth of Sparta and forever forgo vengeance if the Greeks would leave Troy in peace forever. This offer, had it come only days earlier, may have been accepted. However, with fresh supplies, the army now at full strength, and the men's faith in Achilles, it was soundly rejected. Hector then issued a challenge of his own. He said no more men needed to die, and he would duel any Greek hero. The victor would dictate terms to the losing side. The Greek kings could not reject an offer from an honorable hero held in such high esteem by both sides. The Greek heroes argued over who would take up the challenge. In the end, Agamemnon was forced to have them draw lots for the honor. Mighty Ajax won. So there, between the armies, the two heroes met in a duel. It started at midday and they dueled until sunset. Despite Ajax's massive advantage in sheer size, Hector proved nearly as strong and cunning with his spear. Both heroes managed only superficial wounds, fighting fiercely hour after hour. A stalemate should tell you something of the magnitude of the skill of Hector in battle. Before this duel, no one, hero or commoner, had ever stood against Ajax. Old King Nestor ordered a halt, and the two exhausted warriors stopped. In the process of trying to kill each other, they had come to respect one another. They embraced and exchanged gifts. In later centuries, this exchange of gifts between enemies was seen as an ill omen for things to come. Low-level combat resumed the next day. Because the Greeks were unable to surround Troy, not only had the Trojans successfully intercepted many of the supply caravans, King Priam had also been able to use his vast wealth to hire mercenaries. All things considered, it looked like Troy would be able to hold off the Greeks long enough for them to simply give up and sail for home. A truly strange turn of events, or perhaps the will of the gods, prevented this from happening. During their campaigns, the Greeks had not only taken gold and silver as loot, but also hundreds of beautiful women and brought them back to their camp. Agamemnon, who always had first choice, had taken the beautiful Chryseis as his concubine. Her father, a high priest of Apollo, a man held in very high esteem, made the long journey from central Anatolia and outside the Greek camp made a rousing plea for the return of his daughter and then a dire threat. He stated that if his daughter was not returned, he would pray to Apollo to bring unending sickness to the army and curse them forever. The Greeks of the Bronze Age took their gods very seriously, and a threat like this from a man of his stature was seen as dire. As a result, all of the major leaders of the Greeks insisted that Agamemnon return the girl immediately or they would abandon the war and sail for home. With no choice, he relented and returned Chryseis to her father. His pride was wounded, and in a fit of madness he claimed that as high king he would claim another concubine from all those captured. 
Ever jealous of the respect and immense popularity Achilles had earned, he decided that he would take Briseis, a noblewoman Achilles had captured and fallen in love with over time. It was an act of spite and a show of power, for Agamemnon cared nothing for the girl. Unless Achilles wished civil war in the Greek camp, he had to give her up. Achilles would not fight his fellow Greeks and sent her to Agamemnon with a message that he and the Myrmidons would no longer fight and when the weather proved favorable, they would depart for home. When word reached Troy that the Myrmidons would not take the field, Hector assembled the army and assaulted the Greek camp. This was a full-scale attack using every resource available to him. It appears that he wished to do enough damage to the Greek army, now robbed of its most formidable contingent, that they would have no choice but to sail away. The full assault was successful and the Trojans penetrated through parts of the Greek palisade surrounding the Greek camp. Hector had given strict orders that the ships of the Myrmidons and their area was to be left alone. The Greeks were sorely pressed and on the verge of losing. Seeing the desperate situation, Agamemnon sent Odysseus with a message that if Achilles and the Myrmidons would join the battle, he would return Briseis along with a huge payment in treasure. Additionally, he swore that he had never touched the girl. Yet Achilles stubbornly refused. Odysseus left to return to the battle, yet it is whispered that before he left, he pulled Patroclus aside and whispered something in his ear. The battle in the camp had become bloody and confusing in the extreme. Patroclus saw that the Trojans were on the verge of reaching some of the Greek ships on the shore, which they meant to burn, destroying supplies and trapping them on the beach. Because the beach fleet was so densely packed, the fires from even a few burning ships could quickly spread and burn the entire fleet. He saw the Greeks fighting and dying by the score, with dear friends like Ajax and Teucer locked in desperate battle. Thus Patroclus begged Achilles to allow him to wear his armor and lead the Myrmidons into battle, if only to save their own ships. They argued, but in the end Achilles reluctantly agreed to allow it, giving him strict orders that he was not to press beyond the walls of the camp. When the Myrmidons entered the battle, seemingly led by Achilles himself, the Trojans panicked. Many fled the camp at the sight of them, such was their reputation. Those who stood and fought were already exhausted from hours of battle and were slain with brutal efficiency by the fresh and most elite force on the battlefield. After intense fighting, the Trojans were pushed out of the camp. Patroclus ignored Achilles' command and led the Myrmidons on towards the walls of Troy itself. Hector, seeing that his army was about to be routed, led the royal guard against the Myrmidons and resolved to fight Achilles himself. The two forces met and became locked in fierce combat. Hector went straight for the man he thought was Achilles. They dueled. Patroclus was skilled, having been trained by Achilles himself, but he was still a youth and Hector a slayer of heroes. Hector must have been shocked at how easily he broke through his defenses and quickly dealt a mortal wound with his spear. As soon as Patroclus fell, the fight for his body became intense. The Trojans beyond, seeing that Hector had killed the dreaded Achilles, rallied and rushed back into battle. They pushed the Myrmidons back, and then Hector had a moment to examine the corpse. It was only after he removed the helmet from the body that he realized that this was not Achilles at all, but his young friend and chariot driver. Seeing that his army had rallied and was pushing the Greeks back to their camp on all fronts, Hector removed his own armor and wore Achilles, stripping it from the corpse of Patroclus, and re-entered the battle. This had a dual effect. It confirmed to both armies that Achilles was dead, and it completely shattered Greek morale. Phoenix returned to Achilles' tent and informed him that Patroclus was dead, and that Hector now wore his armor. Achilles' rage turned white-hot and then cold in an instant. He opened a chest that contained a ridiculously opulent set of gold-plated armor his mother had claimed was forged by the god Hephaestus himself. He took up his ash spear and shield and went into battle to kill Hector alone. By this time, the Trojans had nearly pushed the Greeks back into their camp again. 
The feat that Achilles performed next would be attempted by the likes of Alexander the Great and Pyrrhus of Epirus. Alone, he slipped out of a side gate and charged into the Trojan flank. The path of dead and wounded men he left became known as the Red Trail of Wrath. Now I could just tell you what happened, but this is deep into history and you're with your friend and lore master Arjun. And as your lore master, I think the greatest single one-man charge of all time deserves to be seen through the eyes of our old friend, Phoenix, General of the Myrmidons. So take a deep breath. Let it out slowly. If you've got it, put some smoke in the air. The events beginning at the Greek camp on that dreadful afternoon in 1184, before the Common Era, might have gone something like this. Ready? Then let's go. You are about to enter Achilles' tent in the camp of the Myrmidons, the only section of the Greek camp that remained untouched by the ravages of the massive Trojan incursions. For you are Phoenix, general of the Myrmidons, and the searing pain of your shattered left arm that hangs limply at your side is as nothing compared to the pain emanating from the depths of your soul. Uncontrollable tears flow down your face. Not even your years of exceptional self-control and discipline can contain them, for your heart is broken beyond repair. Patroclus, who you love like a grandson, is dead, ruthlessly killed by Hector, who you had come to respect greatly, yet anyone who had seen Achilles in battle would have known it was not him in his armor. Hector knew. You knew that with all your heart. He slaughtered the boy with ease. Patroclus was brave and skilled, but no hero. The look in Hector's eyes when he delivered the death blow with his spear was nothing short of sadistic glee. Enraged, the hardest you'd ever witnessed the Myrmidon's fight was in the ensuing battle over Patroclus' body. You and all the men had taken wounds in that struggle, yet the palace guard, the eagles, had rallied around Hector, believing that he had killed Achilles. They were quickly joined by Aeneas with a large force of his Dardanian spearmen. Even the Myrmidons could not hold against so many, and you were repulsed, though in good order. While withdrawing, you saw Hector remove Achilles' helmet from Patroclus' body and hold it up in the air, and he was met with a roaring cheer that spread across the Trojan army at the death of Achilles. He then smiled in your direction and put the helmet on himself. His men stripped the rest of Achilles' armor and aided Hector in stripping his own and putting it on. He then led a devastating charge into the Greek army. Patroclus' body trampled under the sandaled feet of the eagles. And for that hideous and unnecessary desecration, you were about to do something you had never contemplated before. You were about to tell the prince, who you loved as a son, to let go. To let that tiny part of himself that is still the boy you knew to die and allow this wretched war to consume him entirely. Pulling back the leather hide that served as a door with your good arm, you enter the relative darkness of his tent. When your eyes adjust to the darkness, you see Achilles in the final stages of donning the ridiculously opulent set of armor his mother Thetis had given him before you had departed Thya. Every inch of it plated in gold with intricate metalwork. She claimed it had been forged by the god Hephaestus himself at her bidding. You had to admit you had never seen a more glorious set of armor, and the cost of it could support a small town for many years. And still, you doubted her tale. Before you left Thya so long ago, she had also pulled Achilles aside before you boarded the Chiron and whispered what you were sure were more of her prophecies into her son's ear. The grim and sad expression he had after they parted ways is mirrored in his face now. He knows. Your eyes meet as he tightens the belt, securing the sword to his waist. Hector, he states more than asks. You nod. We fought to save his body, but the Trojans were too many and fought like men possessed when they saw you had fallen. We failed him. No, Phoenix. My pride failed us all. Patroclus' death is my fault, he says and begins to stride towards the door. You grasp his arm. There's more you must know. Hector wears your armor and is routing the army. The bastard led his men across Patroclus' body and trotted into the ground as he led his charge. Even Aeneas looks shocked. 
he stopped his men from doing the same. He acted honorably. Spare him your wrath, for he does not deserve it. As for Hector, your voice trails off. Hector shall dine in Hades. He pulls away from you and exits his tent. You turn and follow. He strides quickly through the camp. Fifty yards from the palisade, he orders an untouched side gate of your section of the camp to be opened. Myrmidons run to obey, and it's quickly unbarricaded with a long creak from its bronze hinges. It opens. Achilles stops at the opening in the wall, surveying the battlefield, planning his path. You sprint to his position and yell, Myrmidons, form on Achilles! As you run, your useless shattered shield arm pains immensely as it dangles and bounces against your armor. You take a spear from a rack in your right hand. When you reach Achilles, you can hear the clattering of bronze from the Myrmidons forming up behind you, though not nearly as loud as it should have been. The fight for Patroclus' body had been vicious in the extreme. Dozens had fallen, and hundreds more were badly wounded and could not take the field. Next to Achilles, while his head is on its familiar swivel before combat, entering his battle trance, you allow yourself a moment to do the same while the Myrmidons form their ranks. Deep in the Trojan lines, far beyond the Greek army which was now being pressed against the camp walls, a giant that you know to be Ajax and surely Teucer sniping with his bow from his brother's shadow are fighting exactly where Patroclus' body had fallen. They are supported by the Spartans, led by Menelaus. They will not allow his body to be lost or further desecrated by the Trojans. Patroclus had been like a brother to many. The heroes of Salamis and the Spartan army were very close to being surrounded. You point at them with your spear and say, Achilles. He looks and nods. Then when his golden helmeted head turns towards you and you look into his eyes, you are shocked. You have never seen them like this before. Bloated and red, tears flowing. And after all of this long war and Achilles' invincibility in battle, you suddenly remember that he is only human. Patroclus' death has broken something in him. You must stay behind, Phoenix. You were injured, and I cannot lose another brother today. Order the Myrmidons to relieve Ajax. I will find Hector. And with that, he charges out across the battlefield. Achilles doesn't run around the Trojan army as he should, but rushes its flank where it's thickest, where they are pushing the rest of the Greek army back into the camp. Your broken arm throbs and you feel exhausted. You've had enough of this war. Finally acknowledging that you cannot take the field, you turn and order the 150 Myrmidons who had mustered. To Ajax and Teucer, no son of Telamon shall die this day. The men roar, Salamis, a sign of titanic respect for the tiny nation and its heroes. They are off at a jog in blocks of fifty men each. When they finally pass you, you see Achilles fall upon the unsuspecting men of the Trojan left flank like a bolt of Zeus's lightning. Achilles, knowing he was alone, was cutting down Trojans in circles around him. He is confronting entire squads of men and dispatching them to Hades with such ease that it is becoming unsettling. The further he penetrates their flank, the screams of dying men causes Trojans to look and witness Golden Achilles very much alive. He fights like a one-man army. He does not dodge, dual wielding his father's ash spear and Chiron's sword, his shield slung defensively from his back. He is cutting down enemies with every movement sliding into the next strike. You have never seen him move like this in all the years you have fought beside him. It is as if he is no longer a man, but transformed by his grief into the war god Ares himself. In mere moments, the entire first section of the Trojan flank is in full rout, hundreds of soldiers desperately running for their lives. In an act of madness, perhaps trying to rally his men, Aeneas stands to face him alone. You shake your head, at once marveling at his bravery and his utter foolishness. Aeneas was a skilled warrior and a hero by any metric, yet it seemed that he had not the wisdom to realize that to face Achilles in this moment is to die. Aeneas rushes forward in his gleaming silver armor, his spear raised in his right hand ready to strike. His silver shield reflects the sunlight directly at Achilles. In that instant, you see the two warriors as gods, 
one gold, the other silver. It is over so quickly that you barely register what occurs. Achilles knocks aside his spear and smashes him in the face with the pommel of his sword. Aeneas falls to the ground unconscious, a mercy granted because you had told him of Aeneas acting honorably at the battle for Patroclus' body. Achilles rushes onward on his quest to find Hector. You order a Myrmidon chariot to follow Achilles, who is even now disappearing from view due to the clouds of vultures, birds, and insects descending from the sky to feast on the dead. You continue to follow Achilles' trail of destruction until he is hopelessly lost from sight by ever more carrion wildlife. You redirect your attention to the fight over Patroclus' body. The situation is desperate. Menelaus and his Spartans are clustered in a tight circle, nearly surrounded by a huge contingent of Trojans who trod upon Spartan dead to reach them. Worse, they were completely separated from Ajax and Teucer. Ajax stands astride Patroclus' corpse, refusing to give an inch, roaring his mighty battle cry, a signal for the archers of Salamis to begin their lethal reign, though this proves fruitless as his countrymen are at camp locked in pitched battle. At this distance, you can barely make out the slight form of Teucer acrobatically dodging attacks and cutting down Trojans with his twin daggers, weapons of last resort, meaning he was completely out of arrows. He was doing his best to protect his brother's flanks and rear, but his range with the weapons was limited, especially against long Trojan spears. Ajax fights like a titan, a one-man phalanx, holding back dozens of Trojans, and Teucer like Hades himself, yet they face too many. And now there is a Trojan hero taking careful aim at Ajax with his spear. Sarpedon, you know him from the huge gold-enameled lightning bolts on his bronze armor. He claims to be a son of Zeus, a royal bastard more likely. He had been wounded by Patroclus, and you heard him swear vengeance as he was dragged away by his men. He is hiding behind his men, stalking Ajax with his eyes, taking careful aim, waiting for his time to strike. A coward's way of making war. He was no hero. Finally, he launches his well-aimed spear at the giant of Salamis. In horror, you see Ajax take Sarpedon's spear in his upper leg and fall. He is about to be sworn by attackers when Teucer leaps in front of his brother to defend him from the suddenly emboldened Trojans. Teucer, though small, had trained and grown to hold his own against Achilles and Ajax since boyhood. Men often joked about the ship full of gold it must have cost to armor mighty Ajax in bronze. You always allowed yourself a silent smile at that. If they only knew the dozens of ships full of gold Telamon had spent on the long twin iron daggers for his second son. Teucer becomes a whirlwind of destruction, shattering bronze tips of Trojan spears with his iron, getting in close and dispatching men left and right. As the approaching enemies realize that he is no easy prey, they begin to slow their advance. Again you see Sarpedon taking careful aim with his spear, just behind the front ranks. You bellow a warning but the gesture is futile given the distance and the noise of battle. At that instant, or perhaps by the will of the gods, Ajax looks up from his wound and sees the threat. He rips out the spear lodged in his thigh, followed by a brief fountain of his blood. He pulls back his arm and launches it with all his might. It flies through the air so quickly they can barely follow its flight. It passes between the Trojans in the front ranks and takes Sarpedon in the neck. Son of Zeus drops, and your last sight of him sees his head roll off his shoulders. Teucer looks back to his brother for the barest instant and nods. He turns back to the Trojans and bellows a war cry of his own. This time it is answered. The Myrmidons roar as they collide with the Trojans attempting to push their perceived advantage against the brothers. One squad of fifty forms a protective circle around the pair, while the others push on to relieve the Spartans. Relief floods you as the Myrmidons fulfill their mission. No son of Telamon would fall this evil day. However, you knew a son of Priam soon would. You finally allow yourself to fully feel your emotions and tears flow down your face as you mourn Patroclus. And perhaps, just perhaps, you shed a tear for Hector. Not the man he had become, but the noble warrior you had fought on the beach so many months ago. At least it might have gone like that. 
In his rage, Achilles cut down hundreds of men and caused thousands more to flee, decimating the Trojan flank, always seeking Hector. The Trojan army was soon in full rout, running back to Troy in the safety of its walls. The one-man assault had completely reversed all the Trojan gains from their assault on the Greek camp, and as they fled, the press of thousands of desperate Trojans at the city gate near the river's commander became crushing, and it was there that Achilles finally caught Hector. Resolved to his fate, and perhaps to buy his men time to enter the city and close the gate behind him, Hector first asked that if he died that Achilles return his body to Troy and allow him proper funeral rites, and he swore to do the same. Achilles scoffed at this and hurled his spear, but Hector was able to deflect it with his bronze shield. Hector charged Achilles, his own spear raised to strike. Achilles knows every weak point of the armor Hector wears. He picks up a discarded spear from the ground, and just as Hector is about to deal his greatest strike, Achilles dodges and buries his spear in Hector's neck, intentionally missing his windpipe. As Hector falls to his knees, blood streaming from his neck, and he quickly bleeds out, the last words he hears is Achilles telling him that his body will be fed to the dogs. And then, Prince Hector, hero of Troy, collapses to the ground, dead. Achilles then ties a rope around Hector's legs and ties the other end to the chariot Phoenix had sent after him, which he mounts and drags the body across the battlefield to the Greek camp. The sounds of the wailing cries of the people of Troy upon the walls echoes across the plain. Achilles drove to his tent and confined himself there, Hector's ruined body on the ground outside. The Greek army retires from the field and sees to their wounded and to repairing the camp. During the night a man dressed as a beggar enters his tent and kneels before the sitting Achilles. He grasps his hand and begins to cry. He informs the prince that he is King Priam of Troy and begs for Achilles to allow him to take his son's body back and give him a proper funeral so that he may pass into Hades with honor and that his family and city could grieve for him. He offers Achilles a huge fortune. Achilles rejects this. Instead he hugs the man and weeps with him. They become bonded in their grief. Achilles for Patroclus, Priam for his beloved son. Achilles allows him to take Hector's body back to Troy and sees that he is able to leave the Greek camp unmolested. Achilles then goes to attend the funeral games being conducted in honor of Patroclus. In Troy, Hector's body is washed and oiled and Hector is given a proper funeral. It is here that the Iliad and our tale comes to an end. I wouldn't do that to you. Aftermath The epic cycle offers different endings to the Trojan War. Everything from Amazons to an army of Ethiopians coming to Troy's aid. So what I decided to do is keep with the Homeric tradition and take some of the more likely outcomes offered in the epic cycle. The next day is a day of truce, where both sides go to the plain of Troy to collect and bury their dead. That night Achilles receives a message from King Priam, asking to meet at the small shrine of Apollo that Achilles had assaulted when the Greeks first landed on the beach. The message suggests that they work together to make peace. Achilles goes alone and finds the shrine empty, and when he exits he is struck by an arrow in his lower leg, perhaps even his heel. Paris, in grief for his brother, had sent the false message and hid it until he could take his shot. This wound would have been trivial, but Paris had in an act that forever tainted his honor, coated the tip of the arrow with a fast-acting and deadly poison. And there, at the spot of his greatest triumph, golden Achilles, son of Peleus and Thetis, fell dead. When Ajax learned that his beloved cousin had died, the grief proved too much for him. In the morning his body was found far down the beach, he had fallen on his own sword. Suicide. With the death of their two greatest heroes, the Greek army lost all will to continue the fight. So Odysseus devised a desperate gambit, a last chance to win the war. At his direction, the Greeks construct a massive and hollow wooden horse on wheels, an animal sacred to the Trojans. 
In it they place Odysseus, Teucer, Menelaus, and seventeen of their best warriors. The Greeks then burned their camp and sailed their fleet out of sight behind the nearby island of Tenedos. A spy trained by Odysseus named Sinon is left on the beach with the horse. When the Trojans come to investigate, he tells them that he was abandoned by his countrymen and they had constructed the horse as an offering to Athena to atone for a temple dedicated to her that they had burned during the war. They required her favor for a safe journey home, so this was their offering. Many Trojans are suspicious and wish to burn the horse, but King Priam orders that the horse be brought inside the city so that they may gain the goddess's favor instead. There is a huge celebration in Troy for what they believed was the end of the war and rivers of wine flow. Late that night, the men inside the horse open a hidden door, exit, and make their way to the nearest gate. There, they easily slay the drunk guards and open it. In the meanwhile, Sinon, who had already left the city hours earlier, lights a huge bonfire that he constructed to signal the hidden fleets. The Greeks return and beach, and the army storms through the open gate and begins to sack the city. The fighting is fierce and intense, but the Trojans, taken completely by surprise, are leaderless and in disarray. Troy falls and its people are put to the sword, and all of its vast wealth taken as plunder. When Menelaus finds Helen, she kneels before him, tears streaming from her face, perhaps just because moments before she had learned that Paris had died defending the citadel. She informs him that he was right and that she had been kidnapped. He embraces her and escorts her out of the burning city. Late the next day, their ships laden with treasure, the Greeks set out for home, the smoke still rising from the fallen city. Yet a few days into their journey they experience rough weather that leads to an intense storm. The fleet is dispersed, each ship on its own, many sink, others make it to their homeland. Menelaus and Helen return to Sparta and resume their lives as man and wife and rule together for many years. When Agamemnon returns to his mighty citadel at Mycenae, he is met by his wife Clytemnestra. She draws a bath for him, and as he leans back and relaxes in the warm water, she has his throat slit, killing him, vengeance for their sacrificed daughter. Odysseus is blown far off course. It takes years for him to reach his island kingdom, and only after going through, well, an odyssey. Ajax's half-brother Teucer stood trial before his father for not bringing Ajax's body or his famous weapons back. Teucer was acquitted for his responsibility but found guilty of negligence. He was disowned by his father and forced into exile. Eventually he conquers the island of Cyprus, and in longing for his homeland, the city he founds is named Salamis. Of all the heroes who fought on the Trojan side, only one survived, Aeneas, Hector's best friend. With his entire world destroyed, he embarks on an odyssey of his own that ends in Italy. According to myth, it is his direct descendants that found a city you may have heard of, Rome. Within a few short decades, the Bronze Age comes to an end. One by one, the towns and cities across the Mediterranean world are snuffed out like candles. Through a combination of mysterious foreign invaders who came from the sea, natural disasters, and the failure of the complex interlinked economies, mankind enters its first dark age. Thank you for listening to Deep Into History. I hope you enjoyed part two of Peerless. To support the show for just 10 cents a day, go to patreon.com slash deepintohistory. You'll enjoy exclusive content and I could really use your help. Also, please tell your friends about my podcast and leave a review on iTunes or wherever you listen. You can also follow me on Twitter at Deep Into History and get your daily blast from the past. I truly look forward to the next time we go deep. Take care, my friends.